Let's pray together for a moment, shall we? Father, we come into your presence this morning and we're about to open your word and to think about what it says and we are uh, grateful for the opportunity to do that. Here we are, this little outpost of heaven. We who gather together uh, gladly to acknowledge the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he's the risen Savior, ascended into heaven, seated at your right hand. And here we are, Father, brothers and sisters together, uh, members of the body, sheep of your flock. Some of, uh, some of us here this morning are, are friends and visitors who have gathered together, but, but we pause now to thank you for this uh, privilege that we have to meet together. We think of those who are not able to be with us. There are a number of them due to illnesses or challenges, things that are stretching them. Uh, Lord, I do pray that you would make us faithful in serving those who are not able to gather with us uh, regularly. Uh, Lord, we confess that the world we live in is just very dark. The Lord Jesus said it. He said, I am the light of the world, and the world is, is we are shrouded in darkness. Lord, we ask that you would remind us this morning, we, we are tempted, sorely tempted to be distracted by the darkness of the world or to live in it. We, we, it is easy for us to lead, lead godless lives in this world because this world is no friend to grace to help us unto God. So I pray that you would awaken us again this morning and uh, quicken our faith that we might, through the word, come to love the Lord Jesus more, come to long for his appearing more, uh, commit ourselves again to following him more faithfully and representing him more courageously. Do that work in us and do that work through us. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying together, amen. Now, I handed this microphone to Lauren. Uh, this microphone stopped working when Joel was praying. Some of you heard his voice departing. It was a perfect opportunity for Lauren to hold it in her left hand and show you what's in her left hand. But she didn't do that. She's modest. She didn't want to brag this morning about her recent engagement. So uh, congratulations, and you missed the opportunity. I, I don't know what else I could have done. All right, now let's proceed, shall we, this morning. Um, this morning, I want to introduce you and in our time in the scriptures this morning in a world that is increasingly riled up. I want to convince you that followers of Jesus have deep convictions that empower us to calm down. In fact, uh, that might be one of the simplest applications for this morning, calm down. Um, I want to remind you in a world that is increasingly riled up, we are those who are calmed down. It has not been a calm week in Washington, D.C. It's not been a calm couple of years in Washington, D.C. The sanest among us have lived pretty normal lives, but if you watch uh, much of the news, you hear about powerful men and women all the time getting riled up, hoping you will get riled up too, and they want you to get riled up about Brett Kavanaugh, who is the most plain person I think I have ever seen. He's not riled up about anything. Uh, I have actually, I have some particular concerns about a news story that I heard 10 days ago. It happened on August 27th. It was a dinner hosted by First Lady Melania Trump in the White House. 
on Monday, August 27th, in the East Room of the White House, about 150 or so evangelical pastors and leaders gathered for dinner with the President and the First Lady. Now, here's just a warning for you in the next few minutes. I may trouble you. I hope to be bipartisan in my troubling. So the president was at this dinner, and Paula White was there, his chief spiritual advisor, from what I understand, Franklin Graham, James Dobson, Ralph Reed, names that you recognize, they were there. And uh, the president asked Paula White to pray for dinner, but to say grace. And uh, before she did, she gave the president a Bible that these... um, a hundred people who are members of the Evangelical Advisory Board for the president uh, had signed. And here was the inscription. She read this. They'd written this in the Bible. First Lady and President, you are in our prayers always. Thank you for your courageous and bold stance for religious liberty and for your tireless, tireless service to all Americans. We appreciate the price that you've paid to walk in the high calling. History will record the greatness that you have brought for generations. And then in his opening remarks, before she had read this, uh, the president spoke about some of the efforts that his administration has made to promote religious liberty around the world. Uh, Efforts that I think we should be grateful for, commendable things. The administration is working not just here, but around the world uh, for the cause of religious liberty. Remember, we have prayed at times for Andrew Brunson, the American pastor who has been held in Turkey. And thanks in part due to the Uh, intervention of the president and the vice president. He has been released from prison, is now under house arrest. I think that's progress for which we thank God. But the president also said to those who were gathered there, he said, you are one election away from losing everything that you've got. And then he quoted Robert Jeffress. Robert Jeffress is the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas. This is the congregation that on Sunday mornings they have an anthem that their choir sings called Make America Great Again. And then he said, Robert Jeffress said uh, about the president, he may not be a perfect human being, but he is the greatest leader for Christianity. Now, this is about 100 people that were gathered there, 150 people or so, one slice of Christianity that consumes a lot of media oxygen. On the other side, there are evangelical brothers and sisters of ours, many of whom are people of color who, are, who believe just the opposite, that President Trump is not going to save the republic but destroy it. They're another slice of the pie that consume more than their fair share of the oxygen. And then there's most of us in the middle. And we don't get very much coverage. We're among those people that I I mentioned this story this week at prayer meeting about this uh, Bible that was presented, and one of the people there at prayer meeting at our church said, they gave him a Bible, let's hope he reads it. And I said, I think instead of signing my name, I might have highlighted a few verses before I handed it in, right? My concerns for both sides of people in this disagreement is that the rhetoric they use, regardless of which side is right, that's not my concern at this point in time. My concern is about the rhetoric that they use. My concern is that the rhetoric they use risks the danger of downplaying or belittling our common confidence in the fact that Jesus is our one and only Savior. That our hope is in Him, preeminently in Him. As Michael Horton wrote, if we are one election, if one election can cause us to lose everything, what exactly is it that we had in the first place? The answer, of course, is to us, we have the Lord Jesus Christ. So be careful, be careful of giving too much credit 
or placing too much confidence or placing too much blame in a human being, any human being. Our allegiance, of course, is to him. In other words, brothers and sisters, let's calm down. Now, I'm helped this morning in thinking about this by uh, the final section of Grace's doctrinal statement, which we come to. We've been walking through the doctrinal statement this summer. Finally, we finish. Uh, next week, I hope to give you an introductory overview of the letters of John, but, and we're going to be in those letters for four or five months. But today, we're after this more systematic view of the Bible's teachings, and we come to this section, which is about the end of the age, Uh, Let's read that paragraph if we can. It's four sentences. There's a lot of inserts in the bulletin, and you'll find the blue one uh, has these notes in it. Some of you already have it out. Let's read this paragraph, shall we? These uh, four sentences about the end of the age. We'll read them together. We believe a person's eternal destiny is forever sealed in this lifetime by acceptance or rejection of the gospel. Unbelievers will experience eternal separation from the presence of God in the lake of fire, a place of suffering and loss. Believers will experience eternity with God in heaven, a place of joyful worship and fellowship with the redeemed of all ages. Christ will return personally and physically to the earth with his saints to establish his kingdom." Today, I want to remind you why we believe that Christ is preeminent, why we put him first, why no human being or institution, why no circumstance, whether it be physical or financial or medical or relational or political, has the power to permanently rile up God's people. It's because, the reason is because Christ is first. He's first in our hearts. He's first in our minds. He's first in our imagination. He's first in our vision for the future. Christ first. No one else has the power over us like he does. And here's why. Two reasons why Christ is first. Number one, because he secures our eternal happiness. He secures our eternal happiness. I wonder if you noticed as you read the doctrinal statement here this morning that most of it is personal. It's about individuals. It's not cosmic. Um, Our understanding of the end age age is it is as cosmic, is cosmic, but this is not as cosmic as you might think it is. It doesn't say anything about some of the things that we usually think about when we think of the end of the age. It doesn't use the word uh, millennium. It doesn't talk about the Antichrist or about the rapture or the day of the Lord or the tribulation. It's not in this paragraph at all. Um, we would expect them to be, maybe, but they're not. In fact, three of the four sentences in this paragraph are devoted to what happens to individuals at the end of the age. Now, why is that? I think it's a good balance. See, a doctrinal statement is supposed to be a summary of the truths that a church needs to agree about in order to function as a congregation. What must we all agree about in order to worship and serve together effectively? Section one of the doctrinal statement says that the Bible is the supreme standard in all matters to which it speaks, and we believe that, and I think we have to believe that as followers of Jesus in order to worship together, that the Bible is the supreme standard in our congregation. It is the word of the Lord Jesus, and since the Lord Jesus is the head, his word is supreme in our body. We have to agree about that to function as a church, but I don't think we have to agree about all of the details about the end of the age in order to function as a church. Um, 
to the best of our ability, our doctrinal statement contains what's necessary and omits what's unnecessary to our unified cooperation as followers of Jesus. We believe that Jesus is coming back physically and personally, but we don't agree about the details. Um, I have views on these issues. I address them when they arise in the text of the scripture. I'm happy to talk about them. I'm happy to disagree with you about them. Sometime the apostle and I, the apostles and I will explain to you our view, and then you will understand uh, what we have been, what I've been talking about. Uh, but in the meantime, we don't have to all agree about all of these details to worship together. But the focus of what we do agree about is on what happens to individuals. So look with me again at these three sentences. I just want to read them about people at the beginning. We believe a person's eternal destiny is forever sealed in this lifetime by acceptance or rejection of the gospel, a person. Unbelievers will experience eternal separation from the presence of God in the lake of fire, a place of suffering and loss. Sentence number three, believers will experience eternity with God in heaven, a place of joyful worship and fellowship with the redeemed of all ages. We're going to talk about them in reverse order, these three sentences. Believers will experience eternity with God. Those last two words, I think, are crucial. With God. With God. It's an echo of what, what John wrote in John, Revelation 21. I'm going to show you a lot of verses again. They'll be posted behind me. Uh, let's look at what Revelation 21 says. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying at the end of the age, Look! God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And what are the implications of that? Oh, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. With God we believe that a great day of resurrection is coming. The redeemed of all ages will rise again. If, if, now, if you're alive with Christ, you'll experience transformation. If you are alive when Christ returns, you'll experience transformation, not resurrection. But this is a resurrection, a transformation to be with the Lord forever. Most of us will begin our eternity with God um, if the Lord tarries, unless he comes back very soon. Many of us will experience, will begin to experience our life with him through death. Now, Paul wrote about this in Philippians chapter 1. I want to think with you for a little bit about death. This is in Philippians chapter 1. I want you to see how Paul views this with God or being with the Lord. What does he think about it? Paul's in prison in Philippi, uh, in, when he wrote the letter to the Philippians. He's in Rome, most likely in prison. He was arrested in Jerusalem for disturbing the peace by preaching the gospel. He wasn't getting justice in Palestine, so he appealed to Caesar. Here he is in Rome. He wrote this letter, and look what he says. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, which has happened, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, what does he think death means? For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Gain, he says. To die would be gain. It's interesting. When you die, you will lose possession of everything that you own. 
every possession that you've ever accumulated, your house, your car, all the money that you have in the bank, all the clothes that you have, all of the antiques, all the precious things, the valuables that you have, you will lose them all. Christ, uh, Paul says, though, that dying is gain. How can that be? Why? Because he says, if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Then he says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Death is gain. To be with Christ is better by far. Now how far? By a magnitude of 10? Will dying and being with Christ be 10 times better than your life is right now? 100 times better than your life? Maybe it will be as, as good as you think it would be if suddenly your salary were quadrupled. Some might think it's going to be better than that. Maybe it's going to be like what some of you who are still working think that retirement is going to be, eternal retirement. That's going to be with God. Retirement, except all those doctor's appointments that you old people go to all the time. I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. That's what most people think of, though, when they think of heaven, right? That it's being rich or being retired or not have to work. It's the great golf course in the sky. You can tell what people value by what they dream of when they die, right? Um, I want a great family reunion that's going to happen in that day. Uh, I want to re- finally have relief. But Paul's emphasis is being with Christ, being with Christ. This complements what he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body here on earth, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. It's gain. It would be far better. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Is that how you think about death? Death is the separation of your body from your immaterial part. Your, your soul and your spirit are separated from your body. And when you as a follower of Jesus die, your soul, your spirit, your immaterial part are with the Lord, consciously present with him. And it is gain. It is better by far. Are you ready for that? No one is guaranteed tomorrow. If the Lord doesn't come soon, then all of us are going to die. My oldest grandparent, my grandfather, was born in 1910. It was 100 years ago. If Jesus, over 100 years ago, if Jesus doesn't come back in 100 years, it's a safe bet that most of us will be dead, almost all of us. You ready for that? We followers of Jesus, we have a very strange relationship with death. On the one hand, because we are human and we live in this broken world, death is our enemy. It stings. We hate death. It separates us from one another. It's the culmination of the decay of our bodies, which we also hate. We hate death. Russell Moore said, um, he said that Christians should be very careful about calling funerals celebrations. I understand what he means. I understand what we mean when we use the term celebrations, but in a real sense, there's nothing to celebrate. The person is dead. 
They're dead because of their spiritual condition, because they were born sinners and they live in a dark, broken world. Sin has won and it's terrible. But on the other hand, death, we sang this a moment ago, is the key that unlocks the door to eternity. It's gain. It's far better. CBS announced recently that the Big Bang Theory, their, their hit television show, was going to end after 12 seasons. And Jim Parsons, one of the stars of the show, was interviewed, and he said this about it. He said, I look at the end of the show much like I think a devout Christian looks at death, not afraid, but hopeful to see the thing they believed in. Russell Moore says, A Christian's view of the end times... Their eschatology does not consist in his prophecy charts, but in his funeral service. At a funeral, the church is perhaps at its most theological. Our crying reminds us that death is not natural, but a horrible curse to be aboard. Our recitation of Psalm 23 and John 11 reminds us that in Christ we have already been delivered from the power of death, and his story is our story. Our placing the body in a casket reminds us of the metaphor of sleep used often in scripture to convey to us that one who sleeps will also awake. Our burying the body in the earth reminds us that we are only creatures formed from the clay, but creatures who will one day be called forth from the dust once again. All of Christian theology points to an end, an end where Jesus overcomes the satanic reign of death and restores God's original creation order. I listened recently to a, an episode of a, a podcast. The podcast is called a, a radio show, 99% Invisible. Maybe some of you listened to it. And this particular episode was called Breaking Bad News. And it was about how medical training has changed in the last 50 years uh, so that doctors can develop skills in teaching patients bad news. Uh, this is not always the domain of doctors. In fact, for uh, the first hundred years of the American Medical Association, at least, doctors were not supposed to give bad news. In uh, 1847, their code of conduct of the American Medical Association said that doctors were not to be gloomy prognosticators. Instead, they were to be ministers of hope and comfort. As recently as the 1950s, doctors were not allowed to use the word cancer. They couldn't say it. Weren't supposed to talk about it. They were only supposed to uh, give good news because to talk about death with patients was, was uh, dangerous to their health. In 1951, the Journal of the American Medical Association had an article telling doctors how to deceive cancer patients about their condition, about what sort of words to use instead of, of, of cancer and, and to evade their questions. In fact, it's said that if a patient discovers that they have cancer and it is traumatizing to them, this journal said that they should be lobotomized. It's terrible. One wonders what in 70 years we'll be cringing at over the journal of the American Medical Association, what they're publishing now. Uh, brothers and sisters, um, we speak candidly about death. It's interesting. In the 1960s, we developed chemotherapy and radiation and because we actually had an answer to cancer, um, that was the time that doctors could actually start talking about cancer because they had an answer, some treatment. We speak candidly about death. We always strive to do so. Death is our terrible foe. It is coming for you. I don't know when. I don't know how. 
Jesus is its master, so there's no one in this room who will die a minute too early or a minute too late. It's coming, and this terrible plight is, as the doctrinal statement says, the acceptance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news. See, your physical decay, your death, is a symptom of a far greater problem that is endemic to us all as human beings. You die physically because you are already spiritually dead. That's how you were born. Your relationship with God the Creator is broken. Do you have family members with whom you don't have conversations? I, I hear about this every now and then. I talk to members of the church or people outside the church. They have a relative that won't talk to them or that doesn't talk to them. Something happened. Something happened with a, a will at some point in time or a, an engagement, a wedding or something. Some terrible thing happened and, and this relationship is broken. I don't talk to my brother. I don't talk to my sisters. I don't talk to my parents. These broken relationships. It's funny. You don't talk to them, but you probably spend a lot of time talking about them. Our relationship with God is broken like that. We have, we have broken it because of our sin. And the consequences of that brokenness is death. The good news, though, is that Jesus has died in our place. He bore the consequences of our rebellion against God in his body when he died on the cross. In our place, he died, he rose again, and he offers life and forgiveness to all who receive them by faith to those who will turn to him and trust in him and believe in him. This reconciliation with God is because of Christ, it's through Christ, it's in Christ. Philip Ryken once uh, speculated or, or mentioned about how kingdoms work. He said, most kingdoms do anything they can to protect the king. Think about that. Isn't that the premise of the game of chess? When you play chess, you do everything to protect the king. You sacrifice pawns, you sacrifice rooks, and bishops, you sacrifice them all to protect the king because once the king is taken, the game's over. He tells us about how on D-Day, as the D-Day planning was taking place, June 6th, the Allied invasion of Normandy, on June 6, 1944, Winston Churchill, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, was convinced that he wanted to be on one of those ships, stand, uh, standing on the ship, watching the battle from the, from the water. And Eisenhower knew this was a terrible idea. But Winston Churchill, how do you convince him not to do something? Well, Eisenhower pulled rank. He went to King George and he said, King George, uh, there's a problem. Churchill wants to go and he can't go. We can't let that happen. So King George called Winston Churchill in and said, Churchill, I understand you are going and you want to be on one of the ships, the D-Day invasion. Churchill said, yes. And the king said, well, if it's your duty as prime minister to do it, then it must certainly be my duty as king to do it too. So I'll go with you. And that's when Churchill woke up and realized this is a really foolish plan. Can't go. Can't sacrifice the king. If you sacrifice the king, all is lost. Except for our king, the Lord Jesus. Listen to what um, uh, Philip Reichen wrote. With royal courage, he surrendered his body to be crucified. On the cross, he offered a king's ransom, his life for the life of his people. He would die for all the wrong things that we had ever done and would do, completely atoning for all our sins. The crown of thorns that was meant to make a mockery of his royal claims actually proclaimed his kingly dignity even in death. Are you ready to die? I spent some time this week with Don LeMaster. His body's wasting away. It's what cancer does. It's a terrible disease. 
And he said to me, he said, I'm weary. I want to go home. He's not talking about Pheasant Ridge. He wants what the Bible promises. He wants to be with God. Why is Christ first? Because Christ secures our eternal happiness. There's no other person who can make and keep promises like the Lord Jesus. Now, there's a corollary to this great promise that we have to think about here as we continue. There are those who refuse to believe. They don't spend eternity with God. The doctrinal statement says they experience eternal separation from the presence of God. And don't be confused about the word separation. The word separation um, does not mean uh, absolute separation. It means separation from God's goodness, but experiencing the presence of his wrath. Much of what we understand from the lake of fire, from what we understand about hell, comes from the teachings of the Lord Jesus himself. Look at this passage in Mark chapter 9. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who would believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell. What does he say about it? Where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. And how does he describe it? Where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Or Jesus was speaking about this in Luke chapter 13. Uh, Now there were some present, he said, Uh, Luke says, at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Here's a story ripped right from the headlines. So Pilate, Pontius Pilate, a a cowardly, terrible man, had taken some some Galileans and uh, slaughtered them and took their blood and mixed it with the sacrifice in Jerusalem on the altar. It was a terrible desecration, a terrible crime, and some people are coming to Jesus to ask his opinion about this. What do you think about this, Jesus, this terrible thing that's happened? And he said to them, Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? That was the assumption. You suffered like that. You must be worse, Jesus says. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18, another, he talks about a falling tower, another tragedy. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Revelation 20, 11 speaks about this perishing. Look at it. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead, all that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. What's the lake of fire like? Well, it was originally made for Satan. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast 
and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is sobering. Over the years, uh, followers of Jesus have tried to make suggestions that maybe would minimize or mitigate this terrible suffering. Maybe, some of them suggest, maybe after you die, people will get a second chance to believe. Maybe that'll happen. So they, they, but then Hebrews 9 says this, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation for those who are waiting for him. Death once, then the judgment. That's why our doctrinal statement says, your eternal destiny is forever sealed in this lifetime. No second chance. There are others who say, well, maybe hell isn't really eternal. That eventually those in hell will be annihilated. But the Bible, the Bible uses this phrase over and over again, forever and ever, forever and ever. The fire never goes out. Russell Moore says it seems like it's compassion to try to believe these things or promote these things. But the, the Bible doesn't allow us these escape hatches. And even in looking them, you have to be careful, right? We read the Bible and we read forever and ever in torment and we think that's terrible and we think, well, you know, if I was God, I wouldn't do it that way. As if to say, I, I'm kind of more righteous than God is, so I would be more compassionate, but I can't help it. You know, this is what the Bible says and I'm really sorry about that. We, Christians don't talk like that. We certainly shouldn't talk like that. Our critics, you understand, our critics, this, to them, this is one of the most disagreeable aspects of our faith, and they raise objections to it. They, they raise objections to this conscious, eternal, terrible torment. What's interesting is that sometimes these objections, they come from people who have lived relatively comfortable lives. They... They don't characterize themselves as, as victims. They, they haven't suffered greatly at the hands of evil. How can anyone deserve eternal punishment? I've never seen anything evil like that. You know, God's wrath is good news for people who have suffered. People who have suffered at the hands of other people. God's wrath is good news for them. And actually, you, sh you should ask, when we object to hell, we're asking the wrong question. So the real question is, the more accurate way to ask the question is, how can a good God spare anyone from this eternal torment? How, how could a just God spare anyone from hell? We all deserve it. How is it possible that God will save anyone? God would be no less merciful, no less loving, no less compassion, no less fair in his judgments if he spared none of us but he has through the Lord Jesus. One final point about this, C.S. Lewis was interacting once with people who objected to hell, the Bible's description of hell, and, and he said to them, well, what do you want God to do? What are you asking God to do? Uh, if, if you hate this notion of hell, what do you want God to do with this world that is filled with, with such hatefulness and such rebellion against him? And he answers for the objectors, he, he says, 
I want God to wipe out all their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help. And C.S. Lewis said to them, that's what you want? Great. Do you know that God has already done that? He already did it at Calvary. That's what he did. So then he continues. So what do you want? Do you want God to forgive those rebels? They will not be forgiven. He said they, will re- they refuse God's offer of life through Christ. Do you want God to leave humanity alone? Alas, he says, I'm afraid that that is exactly what he does. And the result of God leaving you alone is eternal torment. Friend, can I ask, I ask you this morning to consider what Christ has done? He suffered, suffered hellish torments so that you might be free Don't delay in turning to him. Don't think that your good behavior, your generous life, your baptism, your community service, your faithfulness to your marriage vows will spare you. Conrad Mbewe is from Zambia. He says that good deeds are the back door to hell. Jesus is the door to heaven. You must turn to him and you must trust in him. Why is Christ first in our hearts? Because he secures our eternal happiness. Now, I don't have much time to talk about the second reason why Christ is first. I'm, I'm going to mention it. I'm going to flesh it out a little bit. I'm going to read a few verses. But why else here now is Christ first in our minds and our hearts? The answer is because his kingdom is coming. His kingdom is coming. Revelation 11, verse, uh, Revelation 11, 15, actually Hall of Revelation, begins to describe is the beginning of the end. And look what it says. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, it's a beautiful phrase, a handel captured it so well in the Messiah. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. His kingdom is coming. His coming, which is personal and physical, is described for us in Revelation 19. Lauren read the first 10 chapters of this passage. Here's the next section. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dripped dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Why is Christ the King of kings and Lord of lords? The Bible gives us at least three reasons. I'll mention the three of them here. Why is he King of kings and Lord of lords? Because, number one, his death on the cross. His death on the cross. Look at this very familiar passage, Philippians 2, speaking of the Lord Jesus. Who being in very nature with nature, God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, this is an important word, right? Therefore, because of what he did in obedience to his father, therefore, God exalted him 
to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and earth in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why is Jesus acclaimed as Lord? Because he was obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him. Someday, someday, every knee's going to bow, every tongue's going to say, Jesus is Lord. Every president, every prime minister, every dictator, every king, every Supreme Court justice, every senator, every Emmy winner, every crime boss, Every man People Magazine has named Sexiest Man of the Year. Every Super Bowl champion. Finally, here is a taking of the knee that all of us can agree on. Bowing the knee to the Lord Jesus. Even our adversary, the devil, will take the knee and in his slithering voice will say, Christ is Lord. Because, why? Because he obeyed his father unto death. And why else is he king of kings and lord of lords? Number two, uh, secondly, because of the declaration of the Father. Because of the declaration of God the Father. We don't have time to read all this. I wish we did. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree to me. He said to me, the king says, you're my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces with like pottery. This is God's declaration about his son, the Lord Jesus. He's the anointed one. He's the one that all the nations must come and bow before. Sometimes people ask about the presence of the United States in, in, in prophecy. I see no reason why our country would be eliminated from Psalm 2, the nations raging against God. Uh, or, or, or to put it another way, there's no text in the Bible that suggests that among all the nations in the world that are not rising up in rebellion against the Lord Jesus, that there's going to be one lone exception. Why do all the nations rage except that one in the Western Hemisphere, you know? Not in the text. When he comes, the Lord Jesus will not have an American flag in his hand. We have a complicated relationship with death. We have a complicated relationship with our own nation. So I'm, I'm a grateful citizen of the United States. I recognize that the country by far is not perfect, but by comparison to other nations on the planet, it's been a force for great good. Our citizenship in heaven does not mean that we abandon our responsibilities of citizenship in our own countries. We serve in a variety of capacities. It's, it's because of faithful followers of the Lord Jesus, in part, that the country has been a force for good. But we remember the warning in Psalm 146.3, do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. Someday... Someday, followers of Jesus will not be able to serve 
in the same way that their grandfathers and grandmothers did. Serving in the military or serving in the school board or serving in Congress will require too much compromise. It will be treason against Jesus. Someday that day is coming. Some people think it's already arrived. I don't think it has arrived yet, but someday it's coming that day. Psalm Psalm is is about God's declaration about the Lord Jesus and all nations, including our own, will be defeated by the Lord Jesus. And our loyalty, of course, is to him. It's interesting that this declaration that is made, Paul picked up on this in Romans chapter one. He said this declaration was magnified, amplified, made most public and visible on resurrection day. God says of resurrection day, here is my son. Reason number three, why Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords, his decisive victory over the kingdoms of the world, his decisive victory. We read Revelation 19 a a minute ago. Verse 11 says that he comes with justice to wage war. He's victorious, even though uh, Revelation doesn't describe the battle in detail. That's surprising, isn't it? So Revelation does not go into great detail about the battle. It talks about the aftermath, but it doesn't talk about the battle. Every summer blockbuster ends with a 25-minute battle scene. But the book of Revelation does not. Maybe the reason that there's no climactic battle scene in the book of Revelation is because Jesus' main weapon is his word. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations. It says, he speaks and the nations fall. That's all he needs. And thus he reigns. Our politicians love words. They love words, don't they? They speak and speak and speak and speak and they say things and their words don't accomplish very much. But here the Lord Jesus comes and he speaks and he emerges victorious. So brothers and sisters, I exhort you to calm down. Calm down. When you get riled up, you risk downplaying or dismissing what the Bible teaches about the coming kingdom. I quote Michael Horton again. He said, If an election can cause you to lose everything, what is it it exactly that you had in the first place? Surely we can be grateful for any public servant who upholds the First Amendment, and we should applaud fellow believers who ply their education and experience as lawyers to defend religious freedom. However, the the church does not preach the gospel at the pleasure of any administration or decline to preach it at another administration's displeasure. We preach at Christ's pleasure, and we don't make his policies, we communicate them. It's not when we're fed to the lions that we lose everything. It's when we preach another gospel. That's when we lose everything. What, he says, good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Christ is first. He's first because he's our savior, because he's our coming king. That's what we believe. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we confess that we live in a world where apocalyptic language is used all the time. People all the time talk about um, victory in and, 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 and political matches and how, how they're going to win it all, gain us everything. Lord, uh, keep us from being fooled 
or caught up in that strange language. And help us to remember our great allegiance, first and foremost, to the Lord Jesus. Help us to be wisely contrarian people because our loyalties and our loves lay outside of this world. Lord, even as we think about these things, we want to pray with the Apostle John who said, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In our disagreements about these issues, help us to sharpen one another and help us to push one another on towards greater faith in that great day when he comes. The Lord himself descending from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. We look forward to that day. Shape us so that our hope will be in it preeminently, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.